Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. Hey, if we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. I'm so glad you're here. Hope to have an opportunity to meet you before the day is over. I do want to mention that... uh, We will close today's service by receiving communion together, just so you're aware that that's coming as announced, and that's always a really special time here at the Life Christian Church. My intention today is to launch our new series, Cultivate Paradise, with a teaching. Today, a lot of concept that will follow up in coming weeks with uh, hopefully a lot of practicality and application. Um, and um, today's series starts the second in our uh, trimester where we're focused on blessing, and um, the, the first series was based on my new book, The Lord Bless You, and was kind of organized into five, I would call them more sermons, structured like sermons. Today, a little different, more of a uh, ever-winding teaching, uh, which means I'm not sure where we'll end up. It's kind of like where, wherever uh, this thought takes us over this next little bit. Um, great weekend here at the Life Christian Church. Of course, it's President's Day weekend. I'm glad you guys showed up. And uh, we have uh, our youth, Redline youth groups away on winter camp, some 55 kids and their uh, sponsors. I think a team of like 12 great group of kids. They filled a bus and then filled a van, and uh, so say a prayer for them and say a prayer for the people running the camp uh, as well. Um, and then the other thing I would say is I'm excited and I'm thinking about this series that we're entering in terms of the fact that we're entering Lent on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday and preparing our hearts, which is what Lent should be doing in us, preparing our hearts for Good Friday and the celebration of Easter. So... I love the idea of paradise. I want to kind of talk about what paradise means. The term paradise, as used in Scripture, was drawn from a Persian word, which, which signified a garden or enclosed park. It came to be synonymous with the Garden of Eden in the Bible, and in the New Testament, it was used to describe the place where one can eat from the tree of life, the same tree that was at the center of the Garden of Eden. Revelation 2.7 has God saying to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. When we think about paradise in a biblical context, we need to think about Eden Eden past, Eden present, and Eden future, the great garden city where those who believe in Jesus will experience life as it is meant to be forever. I particularly like the word paradise for the new series that we're beginning today because in its original meaning, again drawn from the Persian, it spoke of an enclosed park, a verdant park or pleasure ground. It, it spoke about a place of safety, and I particularly like the idea that it was a setting within an urban context, that it was something beautiful existing in the craziness 
of a city, if you please. Something beautiful in the midst of something that perhaps isn't always beautiful. And this was actually part of the promise of Jesus. The prophet prophesied that Jesus was going to create Eden in the middle of a fallen world. Isaiah 51 tells us the Lord will surely comfort Zion, a messianic prophecy, a prophecy of the coming Christ. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. W.E. Vine wrote that those, that for those in the, in the Near East, paradise expressed the sum total of blessedness. Everything good we could want in this world can be found in that place. Paradise. Uh, it's, it's in paradise that we discover life as it was meant to be. And again, and I know that I've said this many times, and it's a major theme during this uh, trimester that we're in, when you go back to Eden, you get a picture of what life is supposed to be, how God wanted things to be. In paradise past, human beings lived under God's blessing. This blessing showed up in a relationship with God so harmonious that they walked with him in the garden every day day. This blessing showed up in their relationships with each other. They were able to be fully transparent with one another, not affected at all by shame. This blessing showed up in their work. They worked so purposefully and joyfully they didn't even sweat. This blessing showed up in their health. They weren't sick or in pain. This blessing showed up in their resources. They had everything they needed and more. This was life in all of its fullness. This was the God-dreamed life. Sadly, as John Milton, the poet, told us, paradise, that paradise, was lost. What God wanted in the beginning was lost because of human choice. But I like to focus on the fact, and will focus on the fact, that through Jesus, paradise is restored. You remember how when Jesus was on the cross, one of the men being crucified with him confessed his faith in him. The Gospel of Luke says that he said, this guy hanging on the cross beside Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him in response to this guy talking about coming into his kingdom, Jesus answered him by saying, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. I believe in a spiritual sense that each of us immediately experiences paradise when we believe in Jesus, the moment we truly believe in Jesus. The Apostle Paul told the, Felicia, the, the Ephesians, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He said, when we were saved, we were raised up with Christ to be seated in heavenly realms. We know that when we believe, we enter a new dimension of life called the kingdom of God. We enter, if you please, 
paradise and paradise enters us. Jesus said when we believe, we're born again. And that when we're born again, we see this new dimension of life called the kingdom of God. And we actually enter this new dimension of life called the kingdom of God. We, when we believe, eat of the tree of life. We receive eternal life when we believe. Now, this is life that's lived on into forever, but we receive it when we believe. And so we should expect to not only have life forever, but full, flourishing life now. Life as it was meant to be. Jesus, after all, said in our theme verse here at the Life Christian Church, John chapter 10, verse 10, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. This is my prayer for you today, that you would receive the life Jesus promised, which is a rich and satisfying life, or as the message has it, and I love this, Jesus said, I came so that they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. Now, having said that, here's what I want to focus on by God's grace over the next few weeks. Even though we can experience the restoration of paradise now, which we can and we did when we believed in Jesus or do when we believe in Jesus, even though that's real, even though we experience the restoration of paradise now and see and enter the kingdom of God now, we then must cooperate with God to make this new reality everything it is meant to be. All right? That's our new reality. Now we must get involved to let it reach all of its potentiality. In the creation narrative, again, I keep going back to this because um, this is where we find out what, how life was designed, those first few chapters of Genesis. And here's another thing we can learn from this. In the creation narrative, we, get it, we, we see that even though Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, that they still had to cultivate the garden. Even though they were in the Garden of Eden, they still had to cultivate it. They needed to partner with God to make the garden all that it could be. This is how God designed life. He, he didn't finish with everything when he created. He set things in motion and gave human beings a role to play in everything else that was to happen in this world, which was to, to cultivate paradise and to spread paradise by multiplying themselves, multiplying the God image through the world. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Adam worked in the garden. He cared. I, I like to say that one of the keys to living a fulfilling life is to care about what care, God cares about and to work on what God's working on. If you can do that, then you've connected with your original purpose. And so Adam worked in the garden and he cared for the garden. And then there's this passage that I really like, Genesis chapter 2, 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. This is fascinating to me. God creates the animals 
Whatever process he used, he created the animals. And again, this narrative isn't meant to be a science text. It's meant to be the story of God and God telling us things he wants us to know about himself and how he created life. So whatever the process is, I'm not so concerned about as much as as we're learning something about God here when we're told he brings Adam the animals and he tells him to name them. And then he says, whatever you name them, that's what their name shall be. I, th- I think it was Pascal who said that it seems as if sometimes God operates between being uh, a participant and a spectator in the affairs of humankind. And in this case, he, he's, he's involved, obviously. He brings the animal to Adam, but then he stands back and says, what you choose, what you want to do with this, whatever you do with this, that's how it's going to be, which means that Adam's participation is determinative. God, the text says, waits to see what Adam will name them. Now, you can ask layers and layers of questions about how can, didn't God know? You blow the whole thing when you start asking too many questions like that. I think those questions should be asked, but not right now. I think the text, the narrative is trying to tell us something about God. It's a hint about God, and it's God saying, here's this thing, what do you want to do with it? And Adam's actions were determinative. In other words, it mattered what he named them. Whatever Adam named them, that's what its name was. And here's the point. It's clear. It's clear. Boy, you guys are trying to help me today. I appreciate it. And you know me, I can use all the help I can get. It's clear that when we're born again, and when we enter this new dimension called the kingdom, when we taste paradise in our lives, that we are asked to partner with God to make this new reality all it is meant to be as well. We have choices to make that are determinative. We take actions that matter. We can either exploit all the possibility of this new reality or we can minimize the possibilities of this new reality. We must cultivate paradise. Here's this passage, Paul, Ephesians 2, says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, for we are God's masterpiece. And notice these next few words, guys, are really important. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. He has created us anew. What does that mean, he created us anew? When was the, when was the first creation? It's referring back to Adam. It's referring back to the garden. It's referring back to what he created people to do. When he, so what happened, Paul? When he created us anew, why did he create us anew? He goes on to say, so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Always remember, pardon me for repeating it so often, God hasn't changed his mind about what he wanted when he made the world. He hasn't changed his mind for what he wanted and why he made people. He made us to do what he made Adam and Eve to do, which is to partner with him in spreading paradise to this planet by multiplying God's image everywhere so that life can be as God wanted it to be in the beginning. And that's how things will end up in the age to come. So what have we been created anew to do? The same thing that people were created to do in the beginning and missed because God also stood back and let them choose as to whether or not they wanted the life he had dreamed for them. So 
For our paradise reality to flourish, we have to get involved to make it all it can be, which brings me to today's focus. And it'll take me a few minutes to unpack this. Um, we must cultivate paradise now in the power of the second Adam. I want to talk today about cultivating our identity. And what I want to say to you, though it'll take me a few minutes, is that we have to cultivate our identity in order to cultivate paradise. And the identity that I want us to cultivate is the identity of the second Adam as opposed to the first Adam, okay? Everybody still here? You're deciding, some of you decide, am I going to nod off and go to sleep or fight to stay awake and see if he's going to actually go someplace with this? Hang in here for a minute. I think that, I think you'll find this meaningful. So when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they were sent into the wilderness, and Adam now had to work the ground in the wilderness. Genesis chapter 3, 22. And the Lord God said, He must not be allowed to reach out his hand to take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Imagine now this fallen man in a fallen world, trying to get the ground in the wilderness to produce in the same way it had produced in the garden. He had had to work in the garden, but it was in a garden that God had planted, which was flourishing in every way. Adam's work in the garden was work, but it was sweatless work. Now, because of his and Eve's choice, he's now cast out in the wilderness, and now he's asked to try to get barren ground to produce. He's trying to get the wilderness to create something that flourishes, which is really a picture of the plight of all of humanity. Here we are, fallen people in a fallen world, trying to figure out how to get our lives to flourish. And as long as we think of ourselves as fallen Adam in a fallen wilderness, we're going to have a sweaty brow reality and live under a curse instead of a blessing. The fact is that Adam was made to cultivate paradise. Part of how the New Testament describes Jesus is as the second Adam, the second Adam. As opposed to the first Adam, Jesus was the second Adam. See, in the incarnation, Jesus left paradise and entered the wilderness to undo what the first Adam did when he got kicked out of paradise and entered the wilderness. Jesus comes to perform a great cosmic jujitsu. He is going to come and undo, unravel, unravel what Adam did. And part of how this happens is by leaving paradise and coming to this planet, he enters a fallen world to raise the fallen world up. To, to restore it, to renew it. And this is what he affected through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So, so he comes to undo what Adam did to bring back what Adam was supposed to have. It was a reclamation progress. And we see this beautifully played out. That's, that's the great cosmic reality. But then there's a microcosmic picture of it in the, the story of Jesus when he enters the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. He's not in paradise anymore. He's now, well, Mark says, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. 
He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and at the end of the story we know, it doesn't appear during it, but at the end of the story, the angels finally came and attended him. But he had 40 really difficult days. Jesus is effectively tempted with the same basic thing that Adam and Eve were tempted with in the beginning. Adam and Eve, are, they're in paradise. They have everything. And they say no to God's best and yes to the worst one can possibly imagine. Jesus now gets a retry. He gets a redo. The man, Christ Jesus, enters the wilderness now, and in the absolute worst of situations, a barren wilderness where wild animals are not walking up to be named, but are walking up to try to take his life. In that reality, Jesus is tempted by Satan as well. And what does Jesus say? He says no. Consequently, he earns the right as the one perfect sinless man to undo the damage Adam did and to take us out of the wilderness and to put us back in paradise. And this, this is why he's called the second Adam. And as again, I'm going to say at some point here and hopefully explain why we need to identify with the second Adam. If we do this, if we'll cultivate paradise, the new reality that we have been created anew to enter, if we'll cultivate paradise in the power of the second Adam, instead of trying to get the wilderness to flourish in the power of the first Adam, we have a possibility of living a rich, satisfying life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, for since death came through a man. And help me out just a little bit today, okay? Um, and I know you're, you're trying to help me out. When, when, I say, when I say something that refers to Adam, please, if you would, Obviously, you don't have to do this, but if you would play along with me, uh, say Adam. And if I say something that refers to the second Adam or, or Christ, say Jesus. You ready? All right. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Jesus, Jesus was the correct answer. <laughs> For as in Adam, I didn't think through this fully. <laughs> For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now notice the contrast here. Adam messed it up. Jesus came to put it back together. Adam's action brought death. Jesus' actions brought life. And then it gets even better, I think, in Romans chapter 5, when we're told sin entered the world through one man, thank both of you, and death through sin. Death reigned from the time of Adam, but the gift, now what Jesus came to bring, is not like the trespass. For if the man, pardon me, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? In other words, if what Adam did was really bad, what Jesus did is really gooder. It's like, 
Adam did something that was bad. What Jesus did is multiplications of good. Adam messed it up, but Jesus, what he's actually going to put back together is going to be something better than Adam ever lost. And then it tells us, verse 17, for if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. We, as we're going to preach in coming weeks, must cultivate paradise. We're going to talk next week about how to cultivate a growth mindset. We're going to talk the next week about how to cultivate spiritual habits. We're going to talk the next week about how to cultivate relationships. We're going to talk the next week about how to cultivate something else that I don't remember, maybe a good memory. And then we're going to talk about how to cultivate uh, generosity. And we're going to talk about how to cultivate the faith of Christ. We're going to get real practical on how to cultivate these areas in our lives so we can live the rich, foolish, flourish life God planned for us. But it all begins with this. We cannot cultivate paradise in the power of the fallen Adam. We can only cultivate paradise in the power of the risen Adam. Okay? And we need to see ourselves, identify ourselves as the new person God says we are in order to be successful at applying all this stuff into every area of our life. So, We must cultivate paradise. We must make our new life in the kingdom of God all it was meant to be. I say this for the purpose of the note takers who are looking at the screen. But we do not do this in the power of the first Adam. We do this in the power of the second Adam. We do this in the power of Jesus Christ. I'll repeat myself. Some of us are still trying to make life work in the power of the fallen Adam. It's like the fallen fallen Adam trying to make the wilderness flourish. We must learn to rest in the power of Jesus, the second Adam, and cultivate our new creation reality accordingly because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus has done, because of what Jesus is doing, because of what Jesus will do in our lives. We can expect to reign in life now. We can expect our lives to flourish. Listen, guys, here's a, here's a really important important thought. Probably not something you think about every day. I, I doubt that you do, but, but I want you to think about it with me for a moment here if you would, which is to say, do you believe more in the power of Adam's sin or do you believe more in the power of the righteous work of Jesus to set everything right? Most people, frankly, live as if they identify more with the fallen Adam then they think about themselves in terms of the risen Christ. I just can't help myself. I have no control. I'm just a sinner. In fact, that's not what Scripture emphasizes. I know people say, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and that's true. It's not wrong to say that. But that's not the emphasis of Scripture. In fact, Scripture calls you a saint. You're thinking, Scripture may call me a saint, but he doesn't call my husband a saint, does it? If he's believed in Jesus, there's a change in identity. You are no longer to think primarily fallen Adam thoughts. You are to think new Adam's thoughts. You are a new creation, created anew in Christ Jesus to do the work he planned for you to do long ago. There has to be a change in our mindsets in order for us 
to partner with God to create flourishing everything in our lives. I've been meditating on a passage of Scripture, actually, since my sabbatical last year. It's Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read a portion of, of Colossians 2, verse 20, and then he kind of he goes off into another thought for a moment and brings it back at Colossians 3, 1. Here's what Paul writes. You died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, which we're told is where we are in a spiritual sense seated as well in this new reality called the kingdom of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When we believed, we died with Christ. When we were baptized, we buried the old us and were raised a new us. The fallen Adam died. The new Adam lives. We have an entire new identity. We died and our lives are now hidden in Christ. Part of what this means is when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us in all of our fallenness. He sees us as if we were his son, Jesus Christ, because we died and our lives are hidden in Christ, in God. This is why we're able to have a relationship with the Holy God. And it's only through having a relationship with the Holy God that we have the power to actually live like the people he says we are. It's not that, that old fallen person. That's not the person who's going to create a rich, flourishing life. But that's okay. That person died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. And your life is hidden in Christ in God. Now, in this new power, this new reality, we have work to do. We think in this new reality. We work in this new reality. Now, we get to work putting to death things that keep us from living a full, flourishing life. So, so there's kind of a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a both-and reality here. Yes, we died, and our lives are now hidden in Christ, but our sinful nature, that part of us, the King James calls it our flesh, but it's more appropriate in the more uh, recent translations called the sinful nature. That part of us that learned to live independent from God is still hanging on, still got, you know, the, the old dead man is still got his arms around our leg, you know, and we're, you know, there's a, who shall, anyway, I better not get off on that, except to say that now there's a, there's a battle, there's a struggle now that's going on between who God now says we are and who we in fact are and who we used to be, who died. And there's a struggle. And spiritual growth is about closing the gap between the fallen Adam and the risen Adam, between the first Adam and the second Adam, between who God says we are and who we act like we are in the realities of our everyday life. There's a battle now that's going on. And, but, but, but here's the thing. We cannot grow spiritually unless we are doing it resting in the new reality. 
We are approaching the challenges in our lives now as someone who died and whose life is hidden with Christ and God. It's like uh, um, um, Galatians 2.20 tells us, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Well, are you alive? Yes, you're alive. But you understand that what's happening here is a reference to what's going on in the dimension of spiritual reality. You died. And the life that you now live, you are living through Christ. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The word faith is hugely important there. What do you believe about who you are? What do you believe about who he is? What do you believe about your new reality? And so I'll skip back up to Colossians 3 again where we were told, Colossians 3, 1, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And then it says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, and so on. All right, so now we have to go to work on our lives, right? I can tell you all day long who you are in Christ, but most of us still have things to work on in our lives to actually live like Christ. But here's the point I'm trying to make, desperately trying to make. I'm trying to say, that the first step in putting to death the dead man is to understand that your identity is found in Christ, that you are a new creation, and you go to work on your life in his power. You cultivate paradise in the power of the second Adam. See, justification leads to sanctification. You're not asleep yet. Hang on. I'm going to help you get a good nap today. Here, here we go. Justification. Most of you know what justification is. When we, when we talk about justification, we're talking about what happens when we first believe. When I first believe in Jesus, God looks at me and says, because you believe that the work of my son is good enough to save you, I declare you righteous. I declare you just. You now are hidden in Christ. You now can have a relationship with me. I'm not going to hold your past against you. I now see you through the, through, through the lens of, of the way I look at Jesus Christ, my perfect son. Come have a relationship with me. I love you. Come on, worship me, pray. And I'm going to now, now we're going to work together for you to live up to this new person that I say you are, which moves us from justification to sanctification. Sanctification is about living in the actuality of our lives what our justification says about us. Now, we're not just hidden in Christ, but we live more and more like Christ. And we, we destroy the things in our lives that try to keep us from a flourishing life. And, and so sanctification is about spiritual growth. Justification happens in a moment. Sanctification happens over a lifetime, see? And, but, but the only way we can engage in sanctification successfully is to understand our justification. Right? It, it actually is right. You can't become the person God says you are if you don't start by knowing you're the person God says you are. So, you know, this is one of the great mysteries. How do we actually become the person God says we are? And again, this is the goal of spiritual growth. When we grow spiritually, we close the gap between the fallen us 
and the risen us and the actuality of our daily lives, which is what we're going to focus on in the rest of this series, which doesn't mean I'm finished today. Let's focus the rest of our time today on two points um, based on all the things that I've already said. So to cultivate paradise, we must cultivate our identity as the second Adam And here are two understandings to cultivate this new and true identity. Here's the first one. It may sound like I'm contradicting myself, but I I really am not. There there are several things that are true here at the same time that appear to be battling against each other. Who God says we are and who we are in our day-to-day reality, there's a gap between those two things. Okay, we need to be sanctified. We We have to grow. Okay, and, and in order to, 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 to do this, we have to believe the life that we live, we now live through faith in the Son of God. So we have to start by cultivating our identity before we can cultivate paradise. So the first thing is you have to be honest about your fallen Adam reality. Okay, so we're going to stand in our position in Christ and the new person that God says we are. Yet at the same time, we have to be honest about those areas in which we're still struggling. The Apostle Paul really nails this in a very long writing in Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8. I'll just read a little bit of it, but it gives you a a glimpse into, I think, all of our lives to some extent where Paul says, first of all, he's going to talk about our new identity. He's going to talk about who we are in Christ, which is where Paul always starts. Listen, guys, this is so important. In Ephesians alone, there are four 40 references in the six chapters of Ephesians to the fact that we are in Christ. We tend to think more about Christ being in us, which is absolutely true. But scripture, actually in Ephesians, 10 times we're told the spirits that Christ is in us. 40 times we're told we are in Christ. Our Getting our identity right is essential to living right. So Paul starts as he normally does here with identity. He says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let any sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. It'd be nice if he could just put a period after that and we'd say, we're dead to sin, alive to God, boom, that's the end of the story. Now we've got it all together. But then Paul goes on and he speaks to the human condition, even the condition of those of us who've believed in Jesus. He says a few verses later, about his own life, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. As it is, it is no longer myself who do it. Hear this. He said, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. And he's talking here about his sinful nature. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me who does it. I mean, this is just brilliance on the part of the Apostle Paul that I understand can be very confusing. On one hand, count yourself dead to sin, alive to God. Offer yourself as instruments of righteousness. Sometimes I really struggle. I do things I know I shouldn't do. There are things I know I should do, and I don't do them. But then Paul says, but 
goes back to the first point. That's not who I really am. It's not me doing the bad thing. It's sin that's in my sinful nature still that does the bad thing. But I am not it, and it is not me. I am who God says I am, but I'm fighting now to kill this old part of me that doesn't know it's dead yet. You can have a splinter in your thumb, but you are not the splinter. You can have cancer in your body. You are not cancer. You need to deal with the cancer. You need to get rid of the cancer. You need to be healed from the cancer. Do you understand? But the fact that you have cancer, you don't walk around saying, I am cancer. You say, I have cancer, and I'm praying that I'm going to be healed and delivered and set free from this cancer. So Paul said, sometimes I sin, but I am not sin. That's not how I identify. I do not see myself as a sinner. Even though I sin, I am still a child of God. I am still who he says I am. I died. My life is hidden in Christ my God, in God. Now I acknowledge this error of weakness in my life. It may sound like a rationalization. It really isn't. He's accepting responsibility for the sins he commits. He just not, he's just not buying into the lie that that's who he is. He understands that there's a process of spiritual growth where he becomes more and more like the new Adam and less and less like the old Adam until as his life goes on, there's more Jesus, less fallen Adam more life, less death, more uh, righteousness, less sin, as who he is gets worked out in the practicalities of his everyday life. And then he kind of sums it all up when he says, what a wretched man I am. But thankfully, again, he doesn't stop there. It's an acknowledgement of the reality of the challenges that he faces, but he always comes back to who God says he is because believing that we are who God says we are is the key to being able to live the life that God has called us to live. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we need to be honest about our human fallenness, okay? We can't hide, we can't play as if we don't have challenges because we all do. We do stupid things, we do sinful things. At least you do. I'm a pastor. You know that I'm, I can't. I do stupid things like I just did, and I do sinful things. I don't accept that. I don't say, well, that's okay. That's no, I say, but I do say this, that's not who I am. I am growing to live up to who I now am. I'm not there yet. But you know what? I'm cultivating this new reality and believing that through the power of Jesus Christ, my life is going to flourish in every possible way. So we need to come to God and say, I acknowledge I sinned. I ask you, I turn from it, from from that, and I turn to you, and I ask you to forgive me, and I ask you to continue to work in my life to help me to overcome this and to live like the person that you say I am. There's a lot more to say about that. I like what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. See, God can handle us in our honesty. 
He's partnering with us to change us. And here's the second, final thing. We need to set our minds on our new Adam reality. We need to set our minds on our new Adam reality. Again, Colossians 3, 1, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Who's sitting with Christ in heavenly places? We are. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. We're going to set our minds on that. We're going to focus on that. Spiritual growth begins here. You must see yourself as this new person. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Let me read it better. If anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And then here's this amazing passage. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. You who lost your temper this morning. I mean, everybody argues on their way to church, right? It's just the enemy attacks the married couple in the car on the way to be holy in church, right? It's like the first 10 minutes of service is, Jesus, forgive me that I said that in the car. You, you, who was tempted by something yesterday that you'd be ashamed to talk about publicly. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. That does not cancel out the thing that God is going to continue to help us to overcome. It just gets us started in the right place. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. The reason you're able to sit here in the presence of God right now and not be zapped is because God isn't looking at you. You died. You are hidden in Christ. He looks at you and sees his son, Jesus. That's where spiritual growth starts. To be righteous, this word literally means in this text, I'm quoting now or referring to to the work of W.E. Vine and his marvelous expository expository dictionary of New Testament words. This word righteous means to be everything God requires a person to be. We have a lot of work to do, but let's start right there. I want you, friend, to believe that through your faith in Jesus, you are everything God requires a person to be. Just think about that for a second. How would your life change if you went to bed every night, put your head in the pillow and thought, I am everything God requires me to be. And I'm going to get up tomorrow and go to work to live up to that. Because I know that in my day-to-day life, I don't yet measure up to that. But that's who God says I am. I am everything God requires me to be. Now, I'm going to grow into that reality. So let me just finish by telling you who you are from Scripture. You are. You. You. I was told 
when I was a kid not to point, but I'm going to point at you right now. You are the salt of the earth. That's what Scripture says. You are the light of the world. You are a child of God. You are part of the true vine, a channel of Christ's life. You are Christ's friend. You are a slave of righteousness. You are a joint heir with Christ, meaning everything that's his is yours. You share his inheritance with him. You are a temple, a dwelling place of God. His spirit, his life dwells in you now. You are a member of Christ's body. You are a new creation. You are a saint. You are righteous and holy. You are a citizen of heaven, seated in heaven right now. You are chosen of God, dearly loved and holy. You are born of God, and the evil one, the devil, cannot touch you. You are hidden in Christ, in God. Amen. Amen.